You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nefa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. Look, I think that when people think about leadership or how people grow up or they think about ambition, they often think that there must have been some deep driving ambition that people had at a very early age. That was not me, right? So for me, I was a very studious person. I got things done. Before I became house prefect, I was the post boy for my house. I was the post boy for the school. I was a bellboy in my house at some point. I'd had other leadership roles in terms of leading a dormitory before the whole house, that sort of thing. But I really was more focused on my studies. I read a lot of science fiction. I thought I would love to be an astronaut. So in terms of ambition, it was more around space, going to space or becoming a pilot or becoming an engineer like my dad was. There wasn't some ambition to become the leader that I am today running a university not when I was in high school Hello guys you're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars and our guest today has many achievements um, to his name. He's won many awards, including the Order of the Volta by His Excellency President J. A. Kufour, the Elise and Walter A. Haas International Award, an Elon Medal for Entrepreneurial Leadership, the McNulty Prize, being named one of the 50 greatest leaders in the world by Fortune magazine. He's also been recognized by Africa Leadership Initiative West Africa as a genius fellow. This honor is reserved for only 20 people around the world. The Carter Foundation named him the 2017 Wise Prize for Education Laureate. The Foundation named him the 2017 Wise Prize for Education Laureate. UNESCO named him to a 16-member international commission as part of its Futures of Education initiative. He has also won the MacArthur Fellowship, you know, the Genius Grant. His name is Patrick Ewa, and I know it is synonymous with Ashesi University, and he's truly the ultimate entrepreneur. He's our guest today on Africa's Business Rockstars, whose mission is to educate the new generation of ethical entrepreneurial leaders in Africa. Hello, Patrick, and welcome to Africa's Business Rockstars. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know when you mentioned your name, like I said, most people then think Ashesi University, but there must have been a whole journey prior to um, Ashes University. So take us through your childhood. What is it like? What was a young Patrick like growing up? Starting from infancy or from (laughs) where? (laughs) If we had a lot of time, we'll start from infancy. Give (laughs) us like your childhood years. Okay. I'll start just briefly say that I grew up in Kumasi, Takrade, very early years, and then Accra when I was six years old and came to school in Accra, first at a government school in Osu, and then to Association International School, and I did most of my primary years there and then went on to Achimota School, where I went through secondary education. I like to stick to your primary school days. What was it like in school? Were you studying? Yes, in school, you know, my parents were very particular about how we were doing in school, and they took a keen interest in 
our performance. So were you first in class, second in class, that sort of thing. And so we worked hard. I worked quite hard in primary school. And then we were preparing for the common entrance exam to get us into secondary school. And that was a high stakes exam. So a lot of effort in that. Yeah. So when you say your parents took a keen interest, does it mean you had like a strict schedule to follow? For instance, you wake up, this is what you're doing, no playtime, et cetera. What was that like at home? They didn't give us a strict schedule about what to do, but they just wanted to make sure that our grades were good. And so they checked the grades and discussed with us all the time. And the closest thing to a schedule was wanting to make sure that we practiced the piano every day. <laughs> we were taking piano classes and they were very particular about do your piano lessons. Right, right. Do you still use that today? <laughs> Just no. curious. <laughs> no, the last I played the piano was really when I was in college. Okay. <laughs> but I haven't played the piano in a long time. In terms of your siblings, because I realized you referenced we or our parents were interested in how we were doing in school. So tell us about your siblings. What's the relationship like as well? I grew up with siblings, brothers and sisters and cousins, right? So we always had at least six kids in the house because we had cousins who would come and live with us for a while. And my cousin and brother, because my parents sort of adopted him when we were about four or five years old, he and I were in the same class. So we were the same age. We went through class together. I had a younger sister, younger brother, and an older half-sister. So we all grew up together in our household. And how critical would you say their presence, as well as your parents as well, how critical their role play in shaping who you are today? My brother, who was the same age as me, cousin, adopted brother, he and I were together all the time. We went to the same schools. We were in the same classrooms all the way through high school. And we sort of encouraged each other to do our best. I had a great relationship with my younger brother, still do. He lives in Chicago now. The brother I grew up with, who was the same age as me, he passed last year, just before the COVID outbreak. So yeah, he and I were together all our lives until college and we separated. Right. Let's do a deep dive into your primary school years. What was that like? How did that play a role into the many accolades and the many achievements that you have under your belt recently? Primary school years, I will start from Takradi. I was at Chapel Hill School for just one year before my family moved to Accra. Chapel Hill School was great. I remember it fondly as a fun place. When we moved to Accra, we went to a government school in Osu, which was a very difficult school. I think that year, we were there for a year or so. And that year, I think I was last but one in class oh. academically. <laughs> but it was a school where there was a lot of caning. The teachers caned kids a lot. It was not a very clean environment. I did terribly. And then my parents moved us, my brother and I, to association school. And that first year, our grades improved immediately. So same kids, two different environments, very different results. And so my first year in association, I think I was seventh in class. And then the second year after that, I was always, after that, always top three in my class going through association school. So, I mean, so listening to you, then to draw the relationship, would say that the school you go to definitely plays an important role in terms of how you turn out, right? But the question I want to ask is you might have an individual who's still in the government school, but who's still excelling. So in your case, moving to association and then you started excelling, how do you see, what was the difference that made that happen? The difference for me was the school in Osu, it was a scary place to go to. I didn't like going to school. You knew that this was a place you were going to go and it was going to be 
grim and lashes for every little mistake and this sort of thing. And association school was very different. There was a fish pond and there was this catfish that we all would go look at. Yeah. It was just a happier place, sunnier. There was nice gardens. And I don't remember being caned as much. So that made a big difference. Of course, our parents encouraged us to study. They bought us Lego kits and they made us take piano lessons and all of that. But that was the same in both schools. It's just that very different environment at association school. Right, right, right. Awesome. And so from association, you said you were prepping to get into Achimota? Yes. Okay. And then you took the exam, aced it, and then ended up in Achimota school. That's right. Also being a school prefect, right? Yes, I did become a, not a school prefect, a house prefect at Achimota school of Gutchesburg House. Okay. All right. And is this because you had attributes in terms of being excellent at what it is that you do? Did the teachers identify something and that's how come you got this role? I was a pretty quiet person, academically strong. I was one of the top students. I was very quiet, disciplined. And back then, Gutchesburg House was a very rowdy house. And the house prefects were chosen by the housemaster, recommended by the housemaster. And I think the housemaster selected me just because I was calm and quiet. Okay. To lead a rowdy bunch? (laughs) Which was odd because you would expect that they would get somebody who was big and tough right. to lead that rowdy bunch, but they chose me. One of the things I'm proud of is that Gutchesburg House mellowed out a bit when I was there as a house prefect. Okay. How so? What did you do? It's really simple. For me, I just sort of, I stuck with the rules and I was very fair with all this, all the boys, right? So people who were my friends did not get any favors from me. Nice. In fact, if you were my friend and you did something wrong, you were treated even more. You got into more <laughs> trouble than those who were not my friends. Yeah. And so I sort of earned this respect from the boys. And I also picked my battles, right? So I didn't fight every battle. There's some things that you have to sort of go along with the flow and some things that you have to fight. All right, Patrick. So we're in Achimosa School. You're a house prefect. You're thriving in terms of education as well, like your grades. You're one of the top students in class. But at what point in time did you realize that you wanted more for yourself and out of this? Look, I think that when people think about leadership or how people grow up or they think about ambition, they often think that there must have been some deep driving ambition that people had at a very early age. That was not me, right? So for me, I was a very studious person. I got things done. Before I became house prefect, I was the post boy for my house. I was the post boy for the school. I was a bell boy in my house at some point. I'd had other leadership roles in terms of leading a dormitory before the whole house, that sort of thing. But I really was more focused on my studies. I read a lot of science fiction. I thought I would love to be an astronaut. So in terms of ambition, it was more around space going to space or becoming a pilot or becoming an engineer like my dad was. There wasn't some ambition to become the leader that I am today running a university, not when I was in high school. Okay. So in terms of you saying that you wanted a little bit more for yourself, is that what then influenced your choice to go to the United States and further your education versus staying in your home country and furthering your education? 
Yeah, so I applied to KNUST to study engineering, and I applied to Swarthmore College also to study engineering. So I was looking at opportunities both here and abroad. Now, as I said, I initially thought I'd love to be an astronaut, and then eventually I figured that would be out of my reach because I was not a U.S. citizen or Soviet citizen, and those were the people who could become astronauts in the world. Right. So I sort of decided I'm going to be an engineer, and if you want to study engineering... For me, the two top countries in the world for engineering were the United States and Germany. So I considered Germany, but you know, with Germany, I'd have to learn a new language. Mm. And so finally decided, look, I'm just going to aim for the United States because I know they have very strong engineers there. And it would be great to go study engineering there. Why your choice for Swarthmore? Swarthmore was a bit of an accident because I didn't know about Swarthmore College when I was looking for colleges. I really wanted to go to MIT. Mm. That was the one I'd heard about as a top engineering school in the world. Mm -hmm. I went for academic advising here in Accra, and that's where I learned about Swarthmore College. And Swarthmore, the person who was advising me, told me about the liberal arts, and you could go to some schools that had very strong liberal arts and strong engineering. Swarthmore was one of them, and she highly recommended it. And that's how I ended up applying to Swarthmore. Okay. And did you, you went on your full scholarship? I went on a full scholarship, yes. All right. So once again, you're being studious and wanting to do more and get good grades paid off in this instance. It did. And it was a time when Ghana was in an economic crisis. There's an economic crisis that had started in 1983 mm-hmm. and it was still very much at play. And so things were very difficult financially for all families and certainly for my family as well. And when I applied to Swarthmore, I got a scholarship. At the time, it was $15,100 a year to attend Swarthmore. Mm. And they gave me a $15,000 scholarship. So my parents would have to pay $100. So I applied for a visa and the consular officer said, well, we need to see evidence that your family can pay the $100 for four years, right? So we want to see a bank account with $400 in it. And we didn't have a bank account with $400 in it. And so this had become a big sticking point. And I wrote to Swarthmore and said, I have a problem. Consular is wanting to see evidence of $400. My parents cannot provide that. And so then they just changed my scholarship to 15100 So it was a full scholarship. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so Patrick, you've written to Swarthmore. So they've changed it. So you have a full scholarship, like you rightly said. So you finally arrived in the United States to undertake the course of your dreams, I believe. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing that you realized in terms of educational differences back home and then in the U.S.? The big differences were, one, vastly different resources, right? So the resources at Swarthmore were much, much greater than anything that I'd experienced here. They had two huge libraries. They had excellent engineering labs, science labs. We had easy access to the labs. They were using computers for everything, Up until I applied to Swarthmore, I had not used a computer. I hadn't even seen a computer before. And it was just the month before I traveled, I went looking for somebody that I'd been pointed to in Accra. This person has a computer. You should go learn about it. Mm. And that's the first time I saw a computer and he taught me how to do basic programming. But at Swarthmore, there were computers everywhere, all the labs. So that was one thing, resources. The second was... Just the model of education was very different. It was not about rote memorization at all. Memorization of facts is not 
prioritized. It was more about analysis and thinking and synthesis of information. And the faculty really wanted to, they assessed your understanding of the material rather than the recall of the material. Because this is very different. And they also gave a ton of work. I mean, the level of academic work between high school, even doing the A-levels and college, was significantly higher. The amount of reading you had to do was much higher. And so I had to change my mode of learning. I couldn't memorize. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you couldn't even read it all, right? Let alone memorize it all. That was a big shift for me. And it took me a semester to make that adjustment. I was going to dwell on that a little bit because you mentioned the resources, mentioned how you only saw a computer a month prior to getting to Swarthmore. So in terms of even knowing how to use it, when you got there, did you have to put in extra work so that you can probably meet the level of your peers who have probably used computers since God knows when? Yeah, my roommate had his own computer and he knew <laughs> how to program and, and all of this. So yeah, I had to pick that up yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. But you know, I was able to do it, put in a lot of work and also... I had to sort of balance academic work with working for money, right? So I had to get an on-campus job so I could earn money for myself. And then also I needed a sport to do, but I couldn't commit to like a varsity sport or something like that. And I instead did the martial arts and I trained karate three days a week. And that was it. So I just karate, academic work, on-campus work, and then just friendships. What on-campus work were you doing? A variety. I started working in the library, shelving books. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And then eventually got to be at the reserve desk. So people checking out books, checking them in. And then I also got jobs in the computer center, assisting students with their computer issues. And I also, in my third and fourth year, had a job sort of as a research assistant to a physics professor in the computer graphics lab. So I did coding for him for his research. So did you make enough money to get yourself your own personal computer finally? (laughs) No, I didn't get my own (laughs) personal computer until I was at Microsoft. Oh, wow. Interesting. Patrick, so in Swarthmore, you were working, you were schooling, and then you were also trying to get in the sports aspect as well. Focusing a little bit more in terms of you working. You had to do that so you could basically fend for yourself, right? Right. If you look back... Would you do that all over again if you could have, if you had the means available to you to not even have to work? So just think about your studies. Would you still say you need to get yourself a job? Yeah, I would still do it because I think that there's a lot you get from doing a job. You get the discipline of showing up to work Mm -hmm. at the time that you've agreed. You also get work experience. And that work experience is really important for when you finally are trying to get a full-time job. Your resume matters. Right, And so for me, especially, I think the work that I did as a research assistant to a professor was really important. So I would absolutely work, even if I I had the money and I didn't need to work to make ends meet in college. So now that you're done with college, you land your first job. Mm -hmm. Where was the company? My first job was at Microsoft Corporation. I had applied to a bunch of companies. I had interviews from other companies and there was one that was also thinking about making me an offer when I got the Microsoft offer. And I immediately said yes to the Microsoft offer because that was sort of my dream job. Mm. And they asked me when I could start. And I said, I can start in two weeks. Actually, I said I could start right away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) 
And they said, well, don't you want to take a, a vacation or something? And so we agreed on two weeks. And so after two weeks, I flew out to Seattle. I want to stay on the Microsoft story um, just a little bit in terms of what made you even, you said that was your dream job, but what made you even think of Microsoft? You've moved from Achimoto School in Ghana mm -hmm. into the United States. There are tons of companies. So why Microsoft? Was there like some guidance maybe from your professors, from career fairs? What influenced that choice? So the thing that made Microsoft my dream job was that I had been using their product as a student, right? So the first products that I learned, Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel mm -hmm. on the Macintosh. And then in my engineering classes, in electrical engineering, we did quite a bit of coding. Mm. And we were using these programming languages. We were programming in C. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft had these developer tools that I used as an engineer in programming. And I thought that the software was great, right? So in my mind, there were two companies that were really at the top in sort of the microcomputer revolution, Apple computer and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And I had programmed using Microsoft tools. And that's what really attracted me to the company. So did it end up really being your dream job as you expected? Or you said, oh my goodness, what have I done? No, it was a great job. It was a lot of fun, very intense. I joined this team. Some of these guys were so bright. It was intimidating. I mean, <laughs> they were just so smart, right? And working with those people is a very fast pace, mm -hmm. long hours. And then you see these tremendous successes that you achieve, right? You see the company doing well, the products are doing really well, stock prices going up. And so it was a really good place to yeah. be. Yeah. Do you remember what are some of the key achievements you remember from working there? Roles that you played in terms of the company. And like you said, you see their products go live and are successful. Can you take your, your mind down memory lane and what do you remember? Well, I'll tell you one thing that really stuck for me was we had this annual company meeting. And one of the questions that people would ask Bill Gates at this meeting was his favorite product. And there was one year when his favorite product was a product that I worked on. Oh. And so when he said, my favorite product is remote access services, which was this dial-up networking thing that we had done that enabled Windows machines to connect to corporate networks at a very long distance. Mm -hmm. And that was really great to see, yeah. to hear Bill say that <laughs> our product was the one that he most liked. That's nice. That's nice. So you see, it sounds like you were doing fantastic at Microsoft. In the limelight, Bill Gates mentioned that he likes your products. Then you decide. Yeah, but remember, it was a team <laughs> effort, right? Yes, but still. So everybody would say you're living the American dream. You went on a full scholarship. You landed yourself a, a high-paying job for sure. You're excelling at it. And then you decide to up and come back to your home country. Why that decision? What was that moment where you realized, no, I need to come back home? So it wasn't, it sort of grew on me, right? So when I first went to Microsoft, I think one year after I was at the company, I returned to Ghana to visit. And my first visit back to Ghana was quite discouraging. There was still a military government. A lot of systems didn't work. The telephones didn't work. Electricity was unstable. People feared the head of state, etc. And compared to what I was doing at Microsoft, I just couldn't imagine coming back to work here. So I went back and I told all my colleagues, my friends, I think I'm going to stay in the U.S. 
up until that visit, I'd always sort of believed that I would come back to Ghana. Right. Then I did that first visit. It was very tough. And then she completely changed my mind. And I really just focused on, okay, I'm going to pursue a career here in software development and engineering. But then a couple of things happened. The first was that a couple of crises emerged on the continent of Africa that were in the news a lot, especially Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And the Rwanda crisis caused one of the vice presidents at Microsoft to start this sort of spur of the moment fundraising drive to raise money to send to help people in Rwanda. Okay. And I made a contribution to that campaign to support the crisis and people who are in trouble in, in Rwanda. And then Somalia also was a problem. And then my son was born. Mm. So my son was born shortly after these crises. Mm. And I felt that all this negative news coming out of Africa is not good for anyone of African descent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help. And we really need a different narrative in Africa. So that's when I started to think, I really should be thinking about going back to Ghana and getting engaged with development on the continent of Africa. So that was a trigger. It was just crises in the news and the birth of a child. So, but you're living abroad at this time. You're living in the States with your family, right? Right. So the decision for you to return back home, how did they take it? Did they think, oh gosh, Patrick is crazy or let's go ahead and do this? There was one morning I asked my wife, I woke up and I said, hey, look, what if I said I'm going to quit Microsoft today? Let's go to Ghana. Let's help with education. <laughs> and she immediately said yes. Hmm. And this was not the answer I was expecting. I mean, this is someone who grew up in Seattle, American. I was expecting her to say no, and she didn't. Yeah. So then I said, hey, look, let's think about it. And so it took me a while after she had said yes before I, <laughs> I told my colleagues that I need to leave. Now, when I said I was going to leave, I got a couple of different responses, right? So my manager at the time, he asked, what can we do to keep you? And I said, well, you'd be competing with a dream at this point. <laughs> and he said, okay, we can't compete with a the dream. Then we sort of planned for how I would exit and how much time to give him to find the next person. Other people around me all said, wow, this is a great idea. Go for it. And the vice president who had started that campaign for Rwanda, he sent email. Look, I sent email to all these guys and he responded to my email, copied everybody on it and said, this is just a great thing Patrick is about to do. Let's wish him luck. And when it comes time to raise money to build this university, let's open up our wallets and help him. So fantastic. So I had a lot of support from the people I knew when I announced that I was going to go off and do this. Right, right. Later on, they told me that they thought it was a crazy idea. <laughs> but at the time, they didn't tell me that. Patrick, listening to you talk and saw like the events surrounding your decision. So you mentioned crisis on the continent, you know, so this is politics, for instance, right? You look at Africa and there are health issues. There are different sectors. So one key question for listeners especially is, why the choice for education? Well, education wasn't the thing that came to mind immediately. The thing that came to mind immediately was go back and set up a software company okay. and help create jobs, drive you know, the economy in that way. Okay. But when I explored 
what it would take to set up a software company here, and I spoke with some people who were here, I realized that a lot of students who were studying computer science in Ghana at the time were not using computers mm. in their studies. They were actually writing code on paper. They were getting graded for writing code on paper. And it seemed to me that they didn't have enough practical skill that if I hired them, my company could be successful. So that sort of killed that idea. Now, the reason I settled on education and higher education in particular was because after many conversations here, I came to the conclusion that a big part of the problem was leadership. Leadership as defined by people who have influence mm -hmm. wherever they are. And you take any problem in this country and you drill down enough, it always ends up at leadership as the root of it, right? Leadership, people who could make things better have decided to accept the status quo. People who could make things better have decided to be corrupt. And let's call it what it is. Yes, absolutely. Steal, right? Yeah. And it seemed to me that we needed to change that leadership or we needed to sort of prepare a new kind of leader. And if you look at that question, where do the leaders come from? If you're trying to change the leadership of a society, how do you do that? Well, it turns out that when you look at all those individuals, they're the ones who went through tertiary education. And then, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, they're the leaders, right? So then I decided, okay, if you can change what's happening in tertiary education, then within a generation, you can actually have an influence in the leadership. And I also felt that if I could demonstrate something powerful, something different that was delivering results, then other institutions would follow suit. And then you end up with this sort of movement or systemic change that occurs. Then you really truly do change a country. So that's how I settled on education, because I felt that if you get the education question right, if you solve that problem, all the other problems will sort of be addressed as well. So fast forward, you return home with a dream to build a tertiary institution, right? Yes. And we've noticed that, and people who've been there, Ashesi's curriculum and everything is different from what you would find in a regular tertiary institution in, let's just use Ghana. Was that one of your key strategies and why did you go for that option? It was a key strategy to do something different, right? And I think that if you think about innovation, who are innovators, who are entrepreneurs, who are engineers, these people do a certain set of things, right? The first thing is they question the status quo. And depending on the answer from that question, they'll imagine something different, something new. They'll go implement that new thing. And then they'll persist through difficulty in making that new thing reality. All within the constraints of what we understand about the laws of the universe, right? Yes. Physics. So if we were going to be educating people who are entrepreneuring, who are ethical, we had to first question the status quo of what is actually being done. And by the way, I intentionally use the word question. I don't say reject the status quo. I don't even say challenge the status quo. I say question the status quo. And that's just ask the questions. And the question, the answer to the question might be that the status quo is just fine. And if it is, then you continue it. But if it's not, then you have to try something different. And when we questioned the status quo, we felt that the status quo was not delivering the kinds of leadership 
that Ghana needed. So we needed to do something different. And so we had to explore and look in the world, who else seems to be putting out the kinds of leaders that work? We came to Ghana and we actually did some focus groups. We invited leaders, Mm. Ghanaian leaders, right? So people in the private sector, public sector, military, Mm. faith-based organizations. We got them all into a room to question the status quo. And we asked them to tell us what we ought to do if we were going to start a new university. And we took their answers very seriously. And I've got to tell you, all of them, and most of them products of the educational system here themselves, were saying we needed to do things differently. And so we took that as a license to do things differently, a requirement that we do things differently. Mm. And that's how come we came up with you know, a very different curriculum, a very different pedagogical approach. Yeah. And then the task was to just convince the accrediting authorities to allow us to do something different. So how easy was it to get them to buy into your vision? There was initially a lot of skepticism. And you've got to understand also that the accreditation system here does its work largely by inviting professors at the established universities to review what you're doing and tell them whether what you're doing is the right thing or not. And so as you can imagine, <laughs> the professors of the st- in the status quo didn't think what we were doing was correct. Yep. But we just had to have a conversation and a negotiation. It's a bit of a pull and push and pull sometimes and eventually compromise on what a chassis could attempt to do. Mm-hmm. And the first accreditations that they gave us were just three-year accreditation. So they wouldn't give us a full five years. It's just three years. After three years, we'll come check mm. to see if it's working or not. And so we had sort of this series of three-year reviews mm. as we were going along. And how easy was it for you to, basic stuff like even the land where you put the university, you know, putting it up, getting the students to come in, take us on that journey. How was it? It didn't just, it didn't just happen. Like you said, you returned with just a dream, right? Right. So how did you get all these physical things that you needed to put up for Ashesi to be what it is today? Well, it's, it's a lot of, you take one step at a time. So you build a team, you start to recruit students, you select a few students to get started, you adjust the curriculum as you're going, as you're finding issues. So there's all that stuff that's going on at the university. Parallel with all of that, we had looked at land where we might build a, a permanent campus. In fact, we actually acquired land a year before the university started. Mm. And we had architectural designs underway for what the campus might look like. Mm. The land acquisition was delayed mm-hmm. by a couple of years because we did multiple searches on land title and the first search came clear. The second search came with, we got this notice from the Lands Commission that somebody had claimed ownership for this land. We had to go search for this person. He said he didn't have any claims on this property. Mm-hmm. And you sort of had to go through this whole process of resolving that issue. And that took a couple of years. We also needed to raise money to build that campus. And once we had started in Accra, we decided, wait, Let's hold off on raising money for the campus because it was very hard to do. And let's focus on graduating the first set of students, proving our model, 
getting to financial sustainability and stability, and then we would build a campus. And so eight years after we started, we then began a campaign to raise the money to build a campus. Mm. And then once you've done that, or in parallel with that, you're doing detailed architectural drawings, you're going through permitting processes, you break ground, you begin construction. Did you make use of the email from the vice president? Did you get funds from Microsoft? Oh, yeah. And he actually was the first donor, Mm. besides my wife and I, Mm. to contribute to the Ashesi University Foundation. And he joined our board Mm. for a few years as we were getting started. Patrick, I'm sure what listeners would want to know is you came with a dream to build a school. But to build a school, you require some funds, right? So... Before getting donations from sponsors and all, you mentioned that all you had was you and your wife's savings. Would you be blatant enough to tell us how much you came into town with and how much it cost you to probably start the very first set of putting up a chassis? All right. So I think there are two questions in there. One is, how did I support my family? And what was the initial investment that we put into a chassis? So we set a chassis up as a nonprofit, right? And we set up two organizations, right? We set up a foundation in Seattle. We set up the university in Ghana. At the foundation, my wife and I donated to it. And we asked our colleagues to donate as well. Mm -hmm. And I worked for both organizations. The first two years, I didn't get a salary. Or, well, let me just, my salary was a dollar a year Mm -hmm. for the first two years. Mm -hmm. So I was on the payroll. Yeah, The salary was so low, we didn't even bother to print out the check because <laughs> the paper you would print the check would on more than- would cost more than <laughs> what you're getting. So it was basically our savings. We donated some of it and we used some of it to support ourselves for the first couple of years. Now, we had by the time the university was starting in Ghana, we had raised $2 million in the U.S., So we had raised $2 million, not all of it in cash. Some of it was in pledges to give. And the goal was to raise $15 million, which is what would get us to building the full campus, providing a certain number of scholarships, etc. But we were far from the $15 million goal, but we decided to start anyway. And how long did it take you to achieve your actual target? It took us... 10 years to get to 14.5 million and get the campus up and running. Wow. But that was probably in your plan. You did put in there that it would take us 14.5 years. In my plan, (laughs) I thought we would get the $15 million very quickly and get going. That people would hear this idea and think, oh, this is so brilliant and so necessary. But that's not how it worked. Right. Okay, so fast forward, you began with a handful of students, but now I think you've grown to over 2,000? No, we're at 1,200 students 1, now. 1,200 students yeah. now, okay. And what's your, what, you have a target ambition? The initial target was 2,500, right? So we're sort of driving towards 2,500. It may go higher as the university gets older, mm. but you know that's where we're driving towards. Yeah, and I'll call this your baby. So are you happy with the growth you see? Yeah, I'm delighted with the growth that we've seen. I think things are going really well. Yeah. Are you meeting your mission that you set out, educating entrepreneurial individuals? I would say so. I think that we have, there's two things. It's ethical leadership mm-hmm. and entrepreneurial thinking, right? And I think that on both of those scores, we're doing really well. Yeah. And we can see that from what's happening with our students and our alumni. 
Right. So just um, highlighting on the entrepreneurial bit, you would see that in some instances, when we have Ashesi grads who probably do internships at even corporate institutions, et cetera, after the internship period or after national service, they want to jump onto the very next thing. People say it's impatience. Let's put it that way. Impatience with joining the corporate workforce. Is it because, is it as a result of the educational type or the way the teaching is being done in Ashesi that lets them know that you can do things on your own. You don't have to always be booked up in a nine to five, for instance. Yes, right. So I think that that's a complex question. And on the one hand, we do want our students and alumni to be driven, right? Mm-hmm. We want them to always be pushing the envelope mm-hmm. of where they want to go and what they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we want them to have patience, right? So take the time to build the networks that you need to go and get your next big project done. Now, we measure, I mean, we talk with corporate Ghana, we measure every year, we do surveys to figure out what's going on. And in the very early years, especially, we got feedback that corporations felt that Ashesi alumni would come into entry-level jobs, would speak up when they were not expected to speak up, (laughs) right? And they would ask questions around strategy that people were not expecting young graduates to do. Yeah. And this is a bit of a dilemma because they're actually educated to do that. They're actually educated to be asking questions, to be always seeking, is there a better way to do things, right? And so what we communicated back to corporate Ghana was, well, try to leverage that, right? Actually try to leverage that characteristic of a chassis graduates to see if it'll help your businesses move faster. Absolutely or to meet customer needs better, right? Because that's, in fact, what we're educating them to. On the flip side, we have to sort of work with our students to get them to be asking those questions in a polite way, in a way that (laughs) doesn't ruffle feathers and so on. So that's a work in progress. And I think that we're making good progress there. Now, we've also had discussions. I remember one conversation that was very striking because, you know, there's this bank, it's a local bank, and one of the very senior people at the bank was telling me, look, we hired some Ashesi people and they were great. Like their output was very high. In fact, their performance matched the performance of expatriate staff Mm. with a lot more experience that we had hired. But our problem with them was after just a year or two, they left. And I asked him, well, what was the issue? And they said, well, it was a salary issue. And I said, well, what were you paying them? Well, we're paying them national service rates. And I said, well, then it's a good thing that they left. And he didn't, ex- <laughs> he didn't expect this answer from me, right? And he said, why do you say that, Patrick? I said, well, listen to what you just told me. You just said to me that you've hired some expat yes. staff who are your highest paid people, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. He said, yes. You're also telling me that these are Shesi alumni their performance is the same as your most expensive people, right? He said, yes. And then you told me that you're paying them the lowest possible salary for the work that they're doing. Why would they not leave? I mean, we've taught them to think, right? (laughs) So (laughs) you should really look at your HR system to align salaries with performance, not age. Right, exactly. Which is a lot of what happens in this country, right? It's all about how old you are. Exactly. Rather than what performance or what value you bring to the company and to customers of the company. And so I think there's sort of a a two-way street that goes on. 
Then there's a fourth complaint, if I may use that word, that I hear, which is the people who've started small businesses. Mm. They're entrepreneurial themselves, early days of the company. They've hired some Ashesi people. And you know, the thing about startups is they don't have money, yeah. right? It's like me, my first two years, I was paid yeah, a dollar a year. And they hire these people who, because the money is not great, they'll go off and go work for a larger corporation that is offering higher salaries. And this is a problem because on the one hand, again, very high performing, but on the other hand, impatient to see sort of financial rewards. And for that, look, I would suggest that, and maybe this doesn't work in Ghana, but I think that someone or some companies need to explore the idea of when you find your highest performing new hires in a startup, consider making them shareholders. Mm. I mean, Microsoft did that. Google did that. Facebook did that, right? So you give people stock options and say, you own like 0.5% of the company or 1% of the company or whatever it is. And so they have a stake. And if the company does well, you're also going to do really well, right? Yeah. And that's a way, I think, that's a mechanism that when you're a startup, that's a way to, you share the risk and you share the rewards. But if you're not willing to share the results, then you end up with this phenomenon where people are not as eager to share the risks either, right? So it's a work in progress. I hope that we will start to see some really amazing startups that come that based on this principle that the first few people who took the huge risks with the company have some stake in the company and they really take off. And then perhaps we see the dynamic happening in this economy as well. When you talk about them um, in the economy, I'm just wondering, so how do we get the likes of the Ashesis into the likes of tech, the likes of Legon, the UCCs? How do we fuse this into these um, educational institutions? Well, our approach is there's a lot that we can all learn from each other, mm-hmm. right? So Ashesi is doing some really good things in terms of teaching and learning. And we are now taking steps to share that information, right? So we have this education collaborative that has over 100 universities around the continent participating where we share very openly what we're doing. We've started to do research in the scholarship of teaching and learning. So we're actually writing up, studying and writing up what's working and what's not. And that's going to be shared with academia. And on the flip side, there's some universities that are doing more research than we are, and we can learn from them on how to do better research. And so if we can get to a mode where our universities really truly are learning from each other and sharing with each other, then I think all boats will rise. I totally agree. What's next? What's next on the vision board? What should we expect in the future for Ashesi? Well, there's going to be more growth. There's going to be more emphasis on the things that we're doing already, entrepreneurship, ethics, engineering, all of that. We're, as I just spoke about, we're working on connecting with other universities more Mm -hmm. intentionally. And we're also very keen on really looking at long-term sustainability of the institution. That is, so that's about corporate culture. It's about succession planning. It's about endowments. All of that Mm -hmm. work is currently ongoing. Awesome. So you're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and our guest is Patrick Ewa, the founder of Ashesi University. We'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back. And before we went on break, we were listening to Patrick Ewa, the founder of Ashesi. We've had a really insightful and very interesting conversation. Patrick, so 
you went out of Ghana, right? You worked in corporate America, but you returned with a dream. And education was your main focal point. I'd like to know if you're happy with what you see now. Are you happy with the new Africa? Has your vision been achieved for what you had in mind when you're returning back home? I would say that the vision of a new Africa is one that's very much in progress. It's something that we will never get to a point where we say it has been achieved, right? Because it's more about a process and movement. And there's going to be ups and downs along the way. But the important thing is for us to never lose sight of that vision and to keep pushing towards it. When you mentioned ups and downs, actually, so what are some of the challenges? I mean, you, you did mention, you know, the land title, but then what are some of the key challenges that you've encountered regarding Ashesi? Well, everything that we've tried to do has taken time and effort. And fundraising at some point has been difficult. I mean, think about when Ashesi was starting around the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There had been a major dot-com bubble crash. You think about when we were raising money to build our campus, there had been a global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 9-11. Think about today, there's a global pandemic. So there's always sort of big global events that you have to deal with, the things that are local and the things that are internal to the organization. It's not always easy to find good people for your team. If you're trying to hire faculty in this country, there's not that many PhD programs Mm -hmm. running in Ghana. So You have to try and convince people in the diaspora to return, for example. Mm -hmm. This is challenging. So for me, the fact of difficulty is something that's everywhere in any human endeavor. Absolutely. And in a way, you should just sort of accept it as a given and just be in a mode of always dealing with these challenges and also making sure you're looking at opportunities. So listening to your story, you know, in your journey from childhood, actually, up until now, it's no surprise to us the numerous recognition and awards that have been bestowed on you. How do these make you feel when you think about them or when you look back? Well, it's very gratifying. I mean, some of these awards are, I mean, a real honor, a real privilege to get there. There are times when I get these awards and I feel like, well, it wasn't just me that yeah. did this. It's a team effort. <laughs> There's a lot of people behind this. Yeah. And I'll accept the award on behalf of all those people. But it is good to see the recognition because I think that recognition, you get what you celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. And so that recognition hopefully encourages other people to follow suit. And then we get to a situation where all boats are rising. Absolutely. So what's next for Patrick? You're only just going to start it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not a bad question, right? Think about the name Ashesi. You know what it means? The beginning, beginning, right? Exactly. So the idea is every year should just be a new beginning. And so for me, we're sort of at a new beginning for Ashesi. And it seems almost like just yesterday Ashesi started, but actually, We've been running for 20 years, right? And it's still a new beginning for us. There are lots of new things that we're doing. And for me as a founder, one of the things that I started to think about 10 years ago was how to deepen the bench at a chassis. I mentioned succession planning, right? The way to do succession planning is you want to build the organization to a point where you have such a deep bench that you have three to five people within the organization that could take on your leadership role. And you have... For each of the executive roles and the middle management roles, you have people that you're growing Mm -hmm. so that they could also step up. And you also need to have the governance systems and the systems in place so you could also make these hires from outside. Mm -hmm. So having those processes. 
that's a big focus of mine is making sure we've got all those things in place, making sure we have a strong institutional culture that will stand the test of time. And then this year, we've been working on our next strategic plan. And one of the things that's different about this plan is that it's not something that I have driven mostly, right? So previous two strategic plans, I was a major driver of them. This time, it's my entire team that is driving. So we've sort of had the faculty, administrators, all part of formulating this plan. And it's all, again, part of this sort of journey we're on to make sure that a chassis does not depend on me. I have an expiration date. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone does. Everyone does. So for me, it's very much a focus of building an institution that will last. Awesome. So Patrick, on Africa's Business Rockstars, we have what we call the Rockstars quote. And it's really your mantra, that one thing that spurs you on. So it could be your favorite quotes. It could be anything at all. What would be your Rockstars quote? I don't know if I have a quote that I could give you, but I would say that for me as a leader, that it's very important to have balance in life, right? So one of the things that I make sure I do is to make sure that I'm exercising regularly, taking care of my health, that I have a few good friendships, mm-hmm. good relationships, and that I have a strong team around me at my place of work. So personal and professional relationships, and then your own sort of physical well-being is very important. Absolutely. So this would be my advice to people that if you really want to operate at a very high level, you can't just focus on one thing to the exclusion of these other things that are equally important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patrick, for being our guest on Africa's Business Rockstars. We hope you enjoyed talking to us. (laughs) I did. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for honoring our invitation. So listeners, we've come to the end of another very insightful podcast. Our guest today was Patrick Ewa, the founder of Ashesi University. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll catch you on the next episode. Goodbye.